0: Welcome to another episode of the Jump Around with Blake Dudonis. I am Blake Dudonis. Thanks for joining us here today and what an amazing first weekend of the women's tournament. You got 11 seeds from the MAC, hashtag MACtion, Central Michigan and Buffalo going to the Sweet 16. You've got Tennessee losing on their home court in the tournament for the first time in program history and yet the prevailing conversation around the sports world it's UConn scoring 140 points. Now, every gas bag in America who never watches women's basketball seems to want to weigh in on the subject, even though they are uninformed. Well, that's not the case here. We're going to talk to two people who are very familiar with UConn. We're going to talk to Joe Heg, the head coach of St. Francis, PA, the team that lost to UConn in this first round and gave up those 140 points. We're going to talk to him about if he thinks there was any unsportsmanlike play going on there if UConn's bad for the game and his team's approach going into and during that game and uh, spoiler alert they're not bad for the game the hell out of here with that Then we're going to talk to a member of the media someone who is extremely familiar with UConn because she is a former Husky herself it's ESPN basketball analyst Rebecca Lobo we'll talk to her a little bit on the subject but we're also going to have a little fun with her talk about some things perhaps you're not aware of with her and then we're going to move on, because there are some great Sweet 16 games in action. Things get going tomorrow. Lexington and the Kansas City Regionals will get going. But let's go ahead, take a step back, talk about that game with Joe, talk to Rebecca a little, and then we'll move forward with the rest of this tournament. So we're going to take a break. For you, it's going to last like three seconds. So it's going to end, and then another song is going to start, and then the interview is going to start. But for me, it's going to be like you know 20 minutes, because i got to go eat lunch. So... Thanks for joining us. I'm Blake Dudonis. And we're back here on the Jump Around with Blake Dudonis. And joining me now is uh, someone whose team has been in the headlines recently and it's kind of been the, the hot topic as of late. It's Joe Haig, the head coach at St. Saint Fr- Saint Francis. Pennsylvania, uh, also known as that team that UConn just beat, and coach. First off, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. And before we get into uh, the game that uh, everyone is obviously well aware of at this point, I wanted to start with kind of talking about how you got to where you you are as the head coach of St. Francis. You were an assistant there for a while, and you kind of had an unconventional path to you know rising to the ranks of, of head coach.
1: Well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Blake. Uh, yeah, I did. I'm a head coach now because I, only because I was an assistant at St. Francis, and we were. I was an assistant for four years, and we were pretty good. So we got to win a couple championships and, and played in the last game three times in, in my four years as an assistant, and that uh, that helped uh, the head coach Susan Robinson that get get the job at Providence. So. Uh, when she left, I was lucky enough, you know, that I was lucky enough to get a shot at the head shop here. Uh, and I was only an assistant at St. Francis because I, I was a director of operations at VCU, and, and Beth Cunningham gave me a gave me an opportunity there uh, to do that for two years. And she introduced me to Susan Robinson at of Final Four, and it was the. Only interview that I had. It was the only person that talked to me, and Susan was the only one that gave me a shot as an assistant coach at the college level. So, uh, you know, if it, if it weren't for that meeting at that Final Four, uh, I would probably be a teacher and a high school coach in Richmond, Virginia right now.
0: Yeah, well, it's good stuff. And since you've taken over, I mean, your team has been successful. I know you, in, in the beginning stages, it kind of took a second, but uh, as of the past few years, you've you guys have been very successful, and a big reason for that is that high-paced, uh, kind of let it fly offense that you guys play.
1: Yeah, when I when I first took over, it was—I uh, mean, the intention was to continue doing what had been successful for us, uh, you know, for my four years as an assistant, and and we're obviously competitive every year, so it wasn't an intention to change anything. Um, but then you, we kind of had a. Uh, the, the, the personnel, and I remember sitting in an AAU game one time and just looking at kind of a team play and, and pressing, uh, and then looking at our roster and we had transferred to and had transferred out, um, but we had a great power forward who could guard guards and and defend the full court, and we had a we had a great two guard combo guard who could who could score a lot of points and shoot the three, and we had a great point guard. Um, at the time and, and, until, uh, until she tore a DL and, and we just had some personnel that fit that 1990s Loyola Marymount Paul Westhead playing style, I thought. And, and then we also were competing with, uh, with Robert Morris and Sacred Heart in our, in our league at the time with, uh, really, you know, really good post players inside with the systems that they ran, uh. And then I also felt like we needed to do something different at Saint Francis. We're not we're not a place where uh recruits and, and basketball players are, are beating down our door to come play here. And you know, over, over the ten years I've been here we've had if if a kid did not transfer to Saint Francis, we've maybe had we've maybe had three girls that turned down scholarships at another school. Like so we are always getting we're always getting kids really that had no other opportunity. And, um, and I felt like we'd have a better chance if we're pressing and, uh, you know, trying to create chaos defensively and, and trying to, you know, maximize our effort and, and uh, you know, try and compete that way.
0: Yeah, Loretto, Pennsylvania, for anyone who, who has not visited there, uh, it's, it's quite easy to miss because it is, it is certainly out there and, and you pass a few farm, farm fields before you get there. Um, but what you've done, Joe, has been impressive. I mean, with this year alone, you guys are fifth uh, in the country and made threes a game. You made over 10 a game. You attempted over 1,100 threes, which is third in the country. And you guys are only one of three teams to shoot over 1,000 three-pointers. And, and that kind of leads me into the game with UConn uh, that you guys... You lost one hundred and forty to fifty-two. You took fifty, I think fifty-seven three-pointers and kind of let it go. And obviously, people who aren't privy to you or your style see the score, go, "Holy bleep!" You know what just happened? But you went in and did literally what you've done since you've been at Saint Francis and what's been successful. So the notion that UConn was unsportsmanlike or ran up the score is pretty ridiculous. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, and that's uh, – you know, that, that's one of the things that I, that I really – it bothers me about the situation that, that there's negativity out there uh, towards U, UConn and to and their coach, um, that Geno guy. Like, they didn't uh, – I mean, we, we play a certain style, so when the draw comes out on Monday – and was announced that we're going to play, uh, that we're going to play UConn. Um, we got met with our team, and we had our first meeting, and, you know, this is the draw, this is the situation. Uh, it was helpful that we have uh, we had Nate Harrison, who was on the Maryland team and, and you know, played against them and had been in the Final Four and, and had played UConn before. Um, and we had to decide what we, were to, what we we're going to do. It's not something that I decided 100%. You know, but I did talk to our team. This is, you know, we have a choice. Are we going to be, do you guys want to go in there and play St. Francis basketball? Are we going to go in and try, you know, nobody else has beaten them in years and years. And and no team at St. Francis level has beaten them since like 89 or 1992. So... Are we going to go in and try a, a outside, give it a flyer? Maybe we shoot a million threes, and and you know if half of them go in. We got a chance, um, you know. But we have no other chance. Like we're not a team that's built to slow the ball down and and you know grind it out and hold the ball for 28 seconds and throw a shot up. Like that's you know we we've, we've never we've never played that way. So um, so I met with the team and we had to make a decision on how we were going to approach the game, and that's you know, the locker room conversation, our, our players were, you know, this is coach. This is the way we played. It's the way we've always played. Um, we know, you know, we know that we know what could possibly happen, but, you know, there was only one shot that we would have had in a million to win the game. And that was going to be to play that style and to shoot a million threes. And, you know, and I, I warned our players like this, you know, the downside of this is, you know, they could score 150, 180 points. You know, could have scored 200 probably. You know, because we've been in that situation before when we've played uh, Notre Dame and Florida and, you know, teams at that level that, you know, we press them and you miss shots and they score. And, and you lose the game by 60 or 70, that that happens. But we were also able to beat Wisconsin, 103 to 100 playing that style and we were able to compete with Marquette you know two years ago we were you know we scored 90 some against them and we were in the game made it interesting so uh that's really you know that was our mindset going in are we going to play are we going to do what we've always done just you know just play as hard as we can and compete as long as we can um or were we gonna you know try and do something different
0: knowing what... Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. no, they, no then the fine. important part, the, the lack of sports, you know, when people are
1: accusing accusing Gino of, of being bad sports or whatever, they... Anything less, anything different that, that UConn would have done would have been, uh, uh, in my mind, would have been bad sportsmanship. Like, they played the way that they're... Lot to play, they they compete. They did, you know, they ran their offense, they ran their defense, they played as hard as they can. They tried to execute as best they could the entire game, and and I felt like our kids did that same thing. And it wasn't like like UConn didn't stop playing. They didn't feel sorry for us. They didn't, uh, you know, it's not their fault they scored one forty. Like, I I could have walked the ball up the floor. I could have had our team, you know, hold it for thirty seconds and then kick it into the crowd and then get into a two three zone. You know, if we wanted to play that way, to just try and make the, the numbers on the scoreboard more uh, palatable to people. But, um, no, I think I mean, UConn did what they did, and the did what they do, and they're the best in the world at it. And our goal was to just play as hard as we can, play St. Francis basketball, every possession, and, uh, and see what happened. And, and I was really proud of our kids for doing that cause, Anyone that's played the sport knows it's not very easy to to compete and to play hard when you're down
0: 20 or 30, much less, uh, you know, 70 or 80. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, uh, as far as you know the outcome, uh, you've seen all the talking heads talking about it, you know, even beyond the normal women's basketball scope. It was uh, a topic on Around the Horn. It was talked about with uh, Wingo and Golick is – is there any sort of um any sort of part of you that kind of looks back and goes eh, I wish you would have done it differently or do you still go nope, that's we did what we decided to do, and we'll we'll live with the consequences
1: well the the only the thing that I was worried about before the game and even you know and even now would be uh, the char- those, those kind of charges that that UConn's bad for basketball. That the final was bad for basketball, or uh, you know that U- that UConn was not sportsmanlike, or I worried about like our alumni at St. Francis uh, just looking at the score and saying, "Oh, how terrible that is. That's embarrassing." But if anybody watched the game, and I got some, I got a couple texts from some of our alumni afterwards that, that watched this play and said how proud they were of it. That, that you know, they saw we're still playing hard. We're yeah. still competing. Yeah. Um, the people that didn't watch the game and just look at the final result have something different to say. And and it's, you know, one one thing that's kind of interesting to me that is that, you know, somebody like Mike Dolick or the USA Today writer or the people that are talking that are critical of it, you know, I'm, I'm not that hard to find. You pick up the phone. Like, nobody... Talk to any, talk to me or any of our players, um, you know, or anybody from St. Francis, and look at our mindset. So they're, they're judging on the outside, you know, that, and they weren't in the arena. Like I've, I've gotten a ton of emails, uh, things on Twitter from people that were in the arena and appreciated that we played hard. And you know, the tough part is that you know, at the end of the first quarter. You know, we were down. We gave up fifty-five or whatever. We could stop doing that. Like, do we want to stop and just, uh, you know, kind of play scared, hold the ball? Let's just try and keep the score down. At that point, uh, we could have done it at halftime. Uh, but our our players were were great at halftime, and they were great on the floor. And it, we, you know, the, the alternative, I guess, would have been to stop pressing, to stop shooting threes, to. To just play the game to try and hold the ball, and we could have done that, but we didn't. Want, but we didn't want to do that. Our players didn't want to do that. Like we wanted to compete the way that we play, and not you know kind of chicken out or stop or you know you don't want to. We didn't want to start something and then just, and then quit. And, and you know it's not you know it's not like the final score mattered at that point. It, uh, you know, do you compete each possession as best you can, or do you go through the last 20, 30, 40 minutes or, you know, 20, 30 minutes of it, uh, just trying to, you know, just going through the motions, and, and you know, that's, uh, I don't know, I do not like that alternative. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I also don't like the alternative of, like, UConn is that much better than St. Francis, so uh, you know why even have the game? Like St. Francis shouldn't be playing because I think that's a that's, I think that's a terrible argument to say that uh, you know because you aren't uh, because you aren't as good as the best in the world that you shouldn't play the sport. Um, you know you never know what can you never know what can happen, and this is the first time we've been in the NCAA tournament in six years. Um, but who knows what will happen in coming years?
0: Was, was there ever a moment, and I'm asking you for honesty? Uh, was there ever a moment in the game, even when you you like you said, you knew going in what potentially could go wrong? Was there was there ever a moment where you you looked at the scoreboard and went, "Ooh, boy, <laughs> this is tough." Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You, you know, you stand it on
1: the sideline, and uh, yeah, you look up the scoreboard and like, "Yikes, this is uh- a." <laughs> Hey, we can go back in time a little bit and re- rate sixty or seventy of these points. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, We also had a goal of, of of setting a record for the most three point attempts, and going into the game, you know, there's only one chance, as slim as it is. Like I said, nobody's beaten them. They've had a, a thousand, over a thousand game plans have failed against UConn, so uh, we're not gonna select company there. Okay. You know, we took 57 threes On normally during the course of the year. We shot about 34%. You know, if we would have done – if we would have made 19 or 20, and all of a sudden, you know, our final score, we end up around 85. And, uh, you know, that reduces some of UConn's runouts. And, you know, if the score is 130 to 85, that's an entertaining basketball game. Mm -hmm. Or if UConn has a tough shooting day and we shoot 50%, like – like UMBC was able to do, and, you know, we made 33s out of 60, you know, and then all of a sudden, but, you know, it's it's unlikely, but it was a chance, and it was the only chance that we would have, had. and, yeah, it was was tough at times uh, sitting there uh, on the sideline while the game was happening, and it's tough for our players, I think, and and obviously it's even tougher probably for our fans and bands and people in the crowd, but, again, I'm proud of our players because, you have to have a mindset of not playing the scoreboard, playing the best that you can every possession. And that's what UConn does almost every game. And that's, that's what we're trying to do at our level is not, not play the scoreboard, compete as best you can every chance you can on the floor over the course of the time. And for our players to be able to do that in that environment, when we're down, when we're down 40, 50, 70, um, I think that's really a credit to them. And I think that was appreciated by, uh, by, the, by the people that were in the building that day.
0: Yeah. Well, for you now, a couple days removed too, I know you talked about you guys, but how have, um, how have your kids been? How, how have the kids kind of handled everything and, and the aftermath?
1: Well, the, the couple I've talked to, because um, I did want to check with them, because we want to make sure that you know that's that they're they're the players, and we wouldn't have gone and played that game if the players weren't on board with it. And so I did want to follow up and make sure that that they're doing okay, if they're you know if they're being criticized at all. But uh, the ones that I've talked to said it was really a fun game to play. We you know they they said they wouldn't change it. No, I, I haven't I haven't talked to everybody on the roster yet, but. Um, the ones that I talked to said it was one of the more fun games that they have played. Uh, they love, you know, they like playing on the floor, and they didn't want to play a different style. They said, "This is what we've done. It's what we, you know, it's what got us there. We want our conference doing it. We've had some, we've had some great moments playing that playing style, and you know, they have fun on the floor. And that's the, that was one of the main." Kind of goals going in, I think. When you when you play a team like UConn, we we didn't want to be one of those teams that goes into the building and, and plays scared. And you know, I think if you do that, that's, then that's kind of an embarrassment. Um, we're not embarrassed by the result because we never played scared. Like we competed, we attacked them. We you know we, we attacked their pressure. We got shots off. Uh, you know, I think there's I think there's been one team. And then however long that's gotten over 80 shots against them even. And, and that was a Paulette-Fed Oregon team. So, uh, you know, it is, it is tough if you just look at the scoreboard, but we were able to focus on on playing the game. And, you know, from what I've, from what I've heard back from our players, they, you know, they, they had fun. They did the best they could, and
0: our stops didn't go in. Yeah. Well, to to throw it back at least so we don't, kind of wrap up on on that point you I think a a friendly reminder is that you guys did make the NCAA tournament you did win your conference and you and I were talking before we even hopped on here is that you guys again in Loretto Pennsylvania if you don't know what it is google it real quick and just check that out and your guys championship game against Robert Morris was standing room only I mean the support you guys get and and had at that game against a team who's kind of run that conference and in such a, a rural area. It was a pretty amazing, amazing championship game for you guys.
1: Yeah, that was a great experience. And, and our our crowds have been building, uh, you know, kind of through the year. Um, and that, I mean, we, to, we had over 1,500 in, in the building that day. And, you know, we're in an area that, you know, kind of dominated by, other sports and other things. And there's just uh, not a lot. Like our, our, uh, the town we're in has no stoplight, It does you know, supposedly has eight or 900 people, but I, have, I haven't seen that many in one spot ever. <laughs> uh, you know, this the university. We have about 1,600, 1,700 undergrads. There's not a lot of people up here. And, uh, you know, but they are, the playing styles, our fans are coming out. They're coming, they, they, you know, they're saying we're entertaining. They love watching us play, and that's uh, you know they're they're used to watching men's basketball, boys' high school, you know things like that, Um, and to get them to get people kind of enthusiastic and and entertained by by women's college basketball is is something that I think is really important. And when teams when people watch us play, you know. you know, against UConn with Danny but usually when they watch us play, they they, they come away saying that's, that's an entertaining style of basketball. It's not something I'm used to seeing in women's sports and women's basketball, and, and I'm a fan now, and I'll, I'll I'll come back.
0: Is has the has the sting of it? War, I think I know the answer to this, but has the sting of the loss worn off enough to where you can kind of smile and, and laugh about it a little bit? Oh.
1: Uh, we didn't have much right after like if you see the video of the game where, you know our, our our kids walking off the floor we made sure we could you know appreciate you know our fans and band and cheerleaders and and you come there's a lot of Yukon people were, were standing for our effort and clapping and you see a lot of smiles on our faces like we, we knew what we were going into um i mean it's a credit to, to our players in our program I think that, that we never stopped playing and never played the scoreboard so uh, it's not a matter of kind of the thing of the loss going away um, I haven't felt it yet like there will be a point in time probably you know between now and next October you know where I might look at this <laughs> well look at a stat sheet and then like dang that's that's uh, you know that <laughs> that kind of sucks that score but um you know, we we knew what we were getting into. We just we, we wanted to play, we wanted to play hard. And what more can you ask? Like, you know, I we we're not in the business of trying to lose by yeah. you know, twenty or thirty or forty and to to make other people feel good. Like I I want our players, I want our fans, I want everybody kind of associated with Saint Francis, uh you know, including my daughters and kids in my house to have the attitude of you know not being afraid of a situation and you know be a competitor attack do the best you can and, and don't quit and I think that's that that what it that I would like people to take from the game
0: yeah and uh, certainly you know I'd you know how i feel about you guys and and appreciate you guys i watched you play in that championship game against Robert Morris and so um i certainly uh tip my cap to you and for not being afraid and you guys did play hard so um you know it's one of those things that it's an unfortunate byproduct i guess and that's i guess that's the biggest bigger topic uh, we've been kind of going over today is just you know more often than not the counterpoint to you have been from a side that doesn't watch women's basketball and I guess my biggest thing is if if you don't watch women's basketball, that's that's fine. Uh, but I don't. I guess I don't understand the need to chime in on things you aren't educated on. You know, I don't. I don't go onto engineering shows and throw in my two cents because I'm ignorant in that regard. So um, I'm sure it's been frustrating for you, and, and not to put words into your mouth, but I, I know you've you've kind of been trying to counteract some of the negativity um, and saying, hey, I, I think I've got a pretty good idea considering I was involved in this game.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, and it's, it, it is kind of frustrating because, you know, it's, for somebody out for, for the outsiders to say, well, you, you can't run with UConn. It's like, you don't know. Like, nobody else can do anything else either. Like, they, they're the best. So why not try it? And they don't know our team. Like, we played, you know, 30-some games this year. We've been competitive in most of them. We've played a certain style. For us to try and come in and and change and do something different uh, and do something that hasn't been successful for the rest of college basketball for a couple years, that wouldn't have made any sense to me. Um, And, you know, I don't think the criticisms of of UConn and their program is fair. It's people that, you know, at some point, and, and they get to the Final Four, they have competitive games in the Final Four. Like there's, it's not like the rest of; it's, they're not bad for women's basketball. Like the rest of women's basketball will catch up at some point. Um, there'll be more teams that are competitive, and there are now. They, you know, we, I, I love watching last night when the when the MAC teams are are upsetting the BCS teams. Like that, we have competitive basketball at at different levels. It's it's kind of unfair for outsiders who don't you know don't don't want to you know, they don't want to acknowledge women's basketball anyway to criticize UConn. Like, they are they're the absolute best at what they do. They're with a the world class athlete, uh, world class coach, they run their system, they play hard, they don't play the scoreboard, they play the game as best they can. They don't you know, they they could beat people by more. And it's it's up to it's up to other people to develop our players and you know and it'll happen it's uh it'll happen and the, the example people throw you know give out in, in the media and they talked about ucla in the 60s and you know, i don't even know if you won 10 of the last 11 national championships but ucla was doing it that at that one time and you know at one time they say ucla's uh you know they're, they're upper class and won the national championship and their, freshman, and their freshmen were better than that team. Uh, it'll change, you know, and I think uh, it's up to, it'll change. And I think as women's basketball coaches, we're, you know, we do the best we can and, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, try and put an entertaining and a good product out there. And I think we do that at St. Francis. And I think, uh, you know, there will come a time that, you know, there will come a time when we can compete with uh, some higher level programs. And, uh, you know, I think there's times when uh, there'll be times when there's other teams and, and it won't all be, you know, there won't be so much focus on UConn all the time.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly. Well, Coach, I appreciate you joining us today. and. For everyone, again, St. Francis PA did win 24 games today. They won the NEC championship this year as well. So uh, by all accounts, a successful season. And coach, I really appreciate you giving your two cents on it and being open and honest with us uh, about it all. And just really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time for us. Well, thanks for having me, Blake. I appreciate it. So again, that was Joe Haig, the head coach of St. Francis, and certainly appreciate his time and thoughts. and. You know, so many people have kind of brought that point that he made towards the end of, you know, hey, was UCLA bad for men's basketball? Was, uh the Celtics bad for basketball? What? You know what? I don't even like using those points, particularly myself, because who cares? It's not an apples-to-apples thing. Look, UConn is the dominant force in this game. Like, Tennessee was a dominant force in this game. And what has happened since UConn became that force? It's caused other teams to try to match them. They beat Mississippi State by 60 in the sweet 16, 6-0. Now that one's a cause for concern. And then what happens the next year? Mississippi State beats them. You've got the Baylors, you've got the Louisville, you've got all these teams, the Oregons of the world, these unconventional, non-traditional teams are now rising up, investing in women's basketball. Goodness, South Carolina, hello, no history there. Dawn Staley goes and wins a national championship there. So You tell me it's bad for the game, it's crazy because the proof is clearly it's not. So for anyone to say that, I will at least respect your opinion if you look up the box score, if you watch the game, and actually knew what you are talking about. Because Joe's right. I did watch that game, they were competitive, and they went out guns blazing, the way they play. So I've got some respect for them going in there, not being scared, having some gumption to play their style of basketball and live with the consequences. All right rant over another break for me another five second break for you now we're going to talk to Rebecca Lobo a little bit about this Yukon thing that I don't want to hear about no more we're gonna have some fun this is the jump around with Blake Dudonis and we're back on the jump around with Blake Dudonis and joining me now is a legend in the game a hall of famer the the Hoff if you will Rebecca Lobo. Uh, Rebecca, first off, thanks for joining us. Certainly appreciate you jumping on board with us. And um, before we really get into our line of questioning, um, I need to ask, what is more frustrating for you? The amount of criticism you get for being a UConn homer or the amount of criticism you get people asking you to change the whip around coverage off the UConn game?
2: (laughs) You know, it's pretty equal. I, I'm actually lucky. I don't get a lot of criticism for being a UConn homer. I get a lot of criticism um, for for not saying that they're bad for basketball. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it, this time of year, it's fantastic because, I mean, I understand the frustrations. I don't know however many years ago was, I was um, calling a regional, and I was in my hotel room, and, and we only had – uh you know i think it was espn 2 the games were on and i had my ipad out but but the cell service was bad so i too was watching the tv in a game that wasn't close and yelling at it like i want to go to the other game (laughs) so i I understand people's frustration for that but they're not um, i have absolutely zero control over which game is national or which game is seen in what region but um but I do completely understand why people can be frustrated with that. What what they don't understand, I think, sometimes, especially as it relates to Yukon, is UConn still always draws our highest ratings. And so even when it's a blowout... Um, tend to leave that game on, even if there might be more compelling and closer games on um, in different times. Like, but the thing is, Coach Maria and I all understand that we're, we're spoiled because we've got all four monitors going and we can watch all the games. But um, yeah, we have no control over what programming decides to do there.
0: So, since you brought it up, uh, the the whole UConn bad for the game thing. I think it's. I, I talked about it with Coach Hag of Saint Francis, who you know was on the receiving end of the beatdown the other day, and. And his notion is, you know, hey, you know, I'm telling you it's not bad for the game, so everyone else can kind of shut it. But um, it it seems to me that, for the most part, that criticism is coming from people who just kind of helicopter in, you know, once a year during the tournament, see the score, and then that's it. But um, from what I understand and from what I just hear and from what I talk to, people who are actually around the game don't think it's bad for the game. But for anyone who maybe perhaps thinks that, um, can you go ahead and... You know, just drop your thoughts in on that one.
1: Well, I think the
2: biggest frustration is, like just what you were talking about. It's never people who are um, who are inside the game. I would be happy to have a debate with someone who covers women's basketball, who watches it, who watches UConn throughout the year, who can come at the argument with facts and say, uh, let's have a real discussion about this. Is this bad in any way for the growth of this game? Is it is it bad in any way for the viewership? But that's never the person who's making the argument. It's always somebody, as you said, helicoptering in, and who hasn't seen, who hasn't even seen the UConn-St. Francis game, just sees the score. Doesn't even take the seconds to look at the box score and see that they attempted 57 threes and, and how many possessions that there were and how that may have impacted things. It's people who um, who make these uh, these uneducated arguments. And, um, and, and what's particularly frustrating for me is sometimes when it, it comes from somebody who actually works for ESPN, you know, the network that's showing all the games, which can happen on occasion. But um, that's the frustrating point because, of course, anybody who watches knows that it's not. I, I, I was at a game, a UConn game earlier this season against Wichita State, and I brought a team that I coached. I had about 20 kids there who are 6th, um, 7th, and 8th grade, and it was not a close game. But I tell you what. My, those players watching how UConn was performing, um, they were seeing basketball the way it should and can be played. It was so unselfish. You know, Katie Lou Samuelson in the first quarter at one point hadn't scored at all, but in, and she was on a fast break, and she could have taken a layup, but instead she passed to a teammate to get an even better shot. It was this unselfish, beautiful basketball and, 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 and a way that it would be great if, if all teams played that way. So, um you know the argument that it's in any way bad. I can understand if someone says, you know, it, it's boring or it's not compelling or it's not interesting because that's a subjective way that they feel. And and so, sure, I understand it if if that's how you see it. But to say it's bad or bad for the game, bad for um, the growth of the game, bad for viewership, um, none of those things uh, are are born out. And, 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 you know, Mississippi state is a perfect example. You know, a couple of years ago in, in the tournament, UConn crushes them. And the following year, um, we have one of the highest rated, most interesting games we've ever had in the semifinals last year when, when Mississippi state, uh, upset them, you know, and, and I don't know if last year happens, if it wasn't for the previous year when, when they got beaten so badly. So to me, it's a flawed argument, and the biggest part of the frustration when is when it's made by people I've never, ever seen their name on a byline because they don't cover women's basketball, or, you know, they're just doing it for clickbait on Twitter. Um, those are the ones where, you know, Maria, Coach, and I just say, you know, get off our lawn. You know, <laughs> it's fine if you don't like it. We're okay if you don't like women's basketball. We're okay if you don't watch it, but don't jump in once a year in our, in our kind of biggest showcase and um, and you know drop your turd on it. We we don't need
0: that. <laughs> understand. And that's nice of you not to at Darren Ravel. But uh, I'll go ahead and, th- and throw the name out there. But <laughs> that's good of you. I understand. He- I
2: don't I don't know Darren at all. But when I saw his argument, I was like. You're a business guy. If you're a business guy, isn't business dependent on facts? Give yeah. me some facts. Yes. Where are your facts? You yes. know, that there were. It's, it's not there. It's opinion, and I think that's unfair. If you're gonna, if you're gonna have a voice and it and it have a following, then it, it's it's your job when you're when you're trying to to make an argument that's not a subjective argument that that's not you know just your opinion. We need some facts, and, and so provide them.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. All right, I'm gonna jump off now. We're good. We we got that covered, and uh, we agree. If anyone on that side of the argument, for the most part, is uh, not worth mentioning. So I want to jump to you now. When you look at the WNBA and compare it to back when you played, if you were able to take you at, at at peak, Rebecca Lobo Powers, and place yourself into the WNBA now, would you be? Would you have a chance to be anywhere as good as you were? In your actual prime, just due to the you know evolution of the game.
2: At my peak powers, with my uh, you know my my utility belt and cape on. Yes, when uh, when Rebecca
0: Lobo Barbie dolls are still being produced. Yes,
2: <laughs> um, that would probably be my, my second year in the in the WNBA, and um, the the type of player I was, I think I could still. Um, you know, be, if I was put into the now, I think I could be a, a really um, productive part of a of a lineup. It would have to be a certain kind. I was a you know six four player who could take threes, who was a good passer and and could rebound. And um, but I wasn't a one on one break you down kind of player. I wasn't um, a phenomenal one on one defender. But in certain on certain teams and in certain systems, I think um, I think I still could have. I could, now I think I could still you know be a pretty um, productive player that being said the the skill level now is light years beyond from 1 through 11 what it was in 1997 when the league started there's a lot more we had some great players I mean Lisa Leslie Cheryl Swoop Cynthia Cooper Andrea Stenson. there were some great studs at that time in the league um, but now there's a lot more. You know from the top to the bottom of the roster a lot more really good players so um the game has changed a ton the athletes again from one through 11 are a lot better than they were um the the play the skill level is a lot higher than it was um and again that's where an argument saying that anything is bad for the women's game if, if you haven't noticed how much the game has grown at every level from youth up through the WNBA, you just haven't been paying attention yeah.
0: Who is someone that, when you were playing, that when you knew that that game was coming up, you went, "Oh hell, I got to, I got to play this girl again." Like who's someone that just gave you nightmares? It was, it was
2: Tina Thompson, um, and mostly for Houston, and mostly because she she is she was a really physical player, and they were a really physical team, and so you just knew coming away from that game that you were going to be black and blue. Your body was going to be tired. You were going to be beaten up and sore. Um, the chances were in those days you were going to come away with an L. And um, and also, again, for me, you know, she was one of the early players who at um, the five or the four position were going to step out and make you defend on the perimeter, make you try to figure out how to defend a pick and roll a- as a post player. And in those days, um, it wasn't it wasn't common, so it was a really hard thing to do. Um, I don't know that when I was in college, I graduated in 1995 from UConn, I don't know that once in college I had to defend the pick and roll um, <laughs> out on the perimeter because people weren't picking and rolling. It just wasn't a part of what they were doing. And so it was when we got to the WNBA and, and Houston did it, defensively, you know, there wasn't icing, there wasn't downing, there wasn't mm. any of the anything other than, you know, hedge and, and have your uh guard get over like there, there was just there weren't as many ways to do it and so it could uh it could be a really tough thing to do back in those days
0: what it so you mentioned like the pick and roll is a great example what for you has been and we're excluding just pure athleticism and the development of yeah. athletes what's been the biggest development of the women's game that you've noticed since your playing days is it that is it the offenses and and just kind of the, the complication in that regard
2: Yeah, it it totally is. You know, when the WNBA first started, it was all college coaches, former women's college coaches that were coaching professional basketball. And then as the league matured, we started to get people who had had NBA experience. So uh, my second coach with the Liberty was Richie Atabato, who had spent his entire career in the NBA. And it was it was a completely different way of doing things. Um, the the what we did offensively, what we did defensively, um, the way he looked at the game um, was completely different from from anything I'd had before because that was more of the college college way to do things. Um, the ability, especially now to watch and scout your opponent is light years ahead of it what it was then. I mean, we were still watching VHS tapes in, in the early days of the WNBA. It's not like you could just go on your computer and watch edited clips of the player that you were going against, or you could you couldn't go on and just watch edited clips of, you know, this is what they do um, in the pick and roll, this is what they do in this action. Like the ability to to scout, I think, has completely changed the game because you're much more prepared defensively for what for what your opponent wants to do. Um, but yet, pick and roll was was one of the one of the huge things, um, and, and that that has completely kind of completely changed over the course of you know just the 20, 21 years.
0: What is something moving forward to now? What what is well not something, but what is and you can go, we can go tournament specific, I guess, is who who, or what has stood out to you that has surprised you the most? We obviously know the excellence of those top teams, but, you know, watching this past year or so, what what is something that jumped out to you that you were, wow, I, I wasn't anticipating this from this person or this team or, or what have you?
2: Huh, that's an interesting question. I haven't really looked at it um, in that way. I guess... Um you know, j- tournament-specific, I-, I-, I didn't anticipate, I don't think anyone did, that we would have two 11 seats out of the MAT conference um, in the Sweet 16. When I was watching the MAC championship game, um, I remember thinking, dang, both of these teams are really good and can really play and can score, and they're going to give um, some of their opponents headaches. I didn't think that would necessarily translate into both of them making it into the Sweet 16. Um, I think people coming in didn't have any idea what to expect from Mississippi State. You know, no one thought that they would have an undefeated regular season, that's for sure, um, or that, you know, Coach Schaefer would go with a smaller lineup, at Vivian's at the floor, and that would make her um, – help her become such a productive uh, and efficient scorer. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting every year – like, even South Carolina, with what they lost, they were a huge kind of um, – you know, one of those teams where you're, I'm going to sit back and wait and see how good they are. I know how good Asia Wilson is, but what exactly can they do? And then they have injuries early on in the season. Um, so it, it's fun to to kind of watch because each team, you know, coaches always say this: each team is different. Each team has its own story. Each team has its own journey, and that indeed is the case. And it's it's been fun this year to to watch some of those stories and journeys unfold.
0: Do you still do you still handicap? UConn as, as, as the team that's going to, going to win this thing, barring an upset?
2: Uh, I mean, I I don't know how you can't look at them as the favorite. Um, They're playing so well right now, Um, but that doesn't mean, I think, I don't think, you know, I, maybe two or three years ago, we came on the selection show or at some point we said, you know, it's UConn and then everybody else, you know, I don't think that's the feeling this year. I don't think it's UConn and everybody else with a gap between those, those. Um, I think, you know, I think, Baylor could win a national championship. I think they, they have the ingredients to beat UConn. I think Mississippi State has the ingredients to beat UConn. I think those two teams, in particular, because of the way they defend and because of their makeup, especially with their bigs inside, kind of have the recipe to do it. That being said, I, 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 UConn is playing uh, the best basketball right now. They they've done that consistently all season. Of course, with them, um, you know, they're they're thin and. Uh, the, clearly the only post or the only bench player that Coach would truly trusts is Azrae Stevens. And w- while she's a great one, um, with, uh, whether it's injury or foul trouble in the tournament, you know, is do you want to you, you feel completely comfortable only having one player that's that you completely trust coming off the bench. So I don't think it's I don't think it would be like um, years past where people would be completely blown away if they lost. I don't think that's the case because it's, there is a little bit more separation. This isn't the, you know, Brandon Stewart, Morgan Tuck, Mariah Jefferson team um, that I think everyone would have been stunned if lost. Um, But I I do think they're they're the favorites.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Homer, uh, Rebecca Lobo with us. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So just to kind of wrap things up for people who don't know, um, I'm going to let you plug your, your podcast here in a minute, but if people don't know the background story of you and your husband, do you mind, do you mind giving us a little cliff note version of that?
2: Oh, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you mean how we met. Yes.
0: Uh, yes. Yes. One so of my favorite my husband stories is a
2: writer for sports illustrated and, uh, and we met when I was playing with the New York Liberty, uh, he wasn't covering the WNBA. Um, but we just met out at a bar one night and, uh, and I had been reading Sports Illustrated cover-to-cover cover for the previous year because I had torn my ACL a couple times, and anybody who's done that knows that the only cardio you can really do for a long stretch is riding a bike. And so I would spend an hour on a bike every day reading magazines to help pass the time. So I was reading Sports Illustrated every week cover-to-cover. Cover. And at that time, Steve had a column every week called Air and Space. And in one of the columns, he, he, it was, you know, he had just a bunch of different – things that he thought were funny and jokey line. And one of them was much like uh, New York Liberty fans. I too slept, or no, it was much like, uh, much like Wilt Chamberlain. I too slept with 8,000 women the other night. I was in the stands at a new, like New York Liberty game. So, um, so not even funny. Uh, and so when I met him,
0: I'm laughing at you uh, retelling <laughs> the story, not, not, not the line. I promise. Just
2: just the voice I use. Yes. As if that's his voice. But, um, so when I met him, you know, a little bit into the conversation, I said, "Aren't you? Aren't you the guy who made fun of the WNBA in a column recently?" And, like you could tell, he, he got a little uncomfortable, and he said, uh, "Yes, I am." And I said, "Well, first of all, how many games have you been to?" And he said, "None." And I said, "Well, clearly, because if you had been to a game, you would know that you were sleeping with fourteen thousand people, because that's actually how many we average at Madison Square Garden." Um, so anyway, <laughs> fast forward years later, we have four kids, three of them are daughters. All of our kids play basketball and that man who made fun of uh, made fun of women's basketball has spent countless hours in gyms watching, you know, 4th grade girls basketball, 5th grade girls basketball. I mean, some terrible basketball, yes. Yes. but uh, I've told him I'm like that's sort of your penance now and uh, he's like he doesn't see it that way. He completely enjoys it all. But um yeah, the thing was, he while he, you know, had that throw it way line that was funny, or he thought was funny and it really wasn't, um, he wouldn't have been one of those people trolling, or he wouldn't have been somebody who threw out an unintelligent argument. He would throw out a stupid joke like that, but um, I won't lump him in with the people that we're dealing with these days. Yes,
0: that is very kind of you, very kind of you. So you guys actually have started recently, uh, semi-recently, a podcast. Why don't you go ahead and uh, give a little plug for that?
2: Um, well, we have a po- podcast called Ball and Chain, and actually on this week's podcast we talk a little bit about women's basketball, but for the most part we don't talk all that much about sports other than youth sports because that's the, li- the, life, the life we're living right now with our kids. But it's um, it's basically a husband and wife coming at life from the point of view of a man and a woman, <laughs> and that, those that can often be very different for each one. He, he see, sees the same event that I see, and we see it very differently. <laughs> um So every week we, we kind of, we, we, we talk about that stuff. We talk about uh, what is wrong and right with youth sports. And um, I think especially people, married couples who have children seem to be able to relate to it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, one last thing, and this just kind of popped in my head, and I'll let you go after this. I'm sure you've seen the uh, changes that USA Basketball has proposed at the youth level. Um, and- oh, yeah, yeah I, I, and I was gonna say, I, I think you and I both agree on a, a lot of those those things. For you, with all the, and if anyone doesn't know, USA Basketball is proposing some changes, like taking away the three point line before I think age twelve, uh, you know, prohibiting zone defense, things like that. What are one or two things that they have proposed that they're going to change that pops out to you as being the the best for the development of our our youth in basketball?
2: They're all terrific. Yeah. Um, number one, man-to-man defense. I think it's hugely important at yep. the youth level. Kids learn how to stand still in a two-three zone, mm-hmm. and kids, especially young kids, cannot score outside of five to seven feet. And so you have games that are three to two, or you know, mm-hmm. four to two, because everyone just jam packs the zone. So you don't learn how to play offense. You don't learn how to play defense. Lowering the basket. Fortunately, my kids have played in a league where they do that. You lower the rim, therefore you can teach kids proper shooting form. Kids who are in second, third, fourth grade aren't strong enough, particularly girls, to use proper shooting form on a ten-foot hoop. A second grader simply cannot use proper shooting form on a ten-foot hoop. Mm-hmm. It's it's physically impossible. So lowering the hoop, smaller size basketball for the same reason. Um, kids' hands are tiny; they can't. You know, dribbling isn't so bad, but again, to use proper shooting form, which is, you know, a a muscle memory that you want to start teaching early on um, the smaller basketball. So those are all things that have been proposed that I love. The one thing they didn't propose, which I would love to see, is not allowing full court pressing defense until after age 11. Um, Because when you go to youth basketball now, it becomes... um, Half the time, kids can't get it over half court mm-hmm. because kids aren't strong enough to pass over a press. So if they can't dribble through it, um, it's a turnover. And a lot of kids at this age can't dribble with both hands, and that's developmentally appropriate. But it can't—it doesn't look like a basketball game because kids, are, again, aren't physically strong enough. You know, you'll see teams, Blake, at, at youth levels, and they'll have all five players pressing in the. In the front court before the timeline because nobody's strong enough especially girls nobody's strong enough to then pass over those five players into into their front court so um i love the, the i love the changes they're not even changes they're suggestions and i just wish they'd added that one more that you're not allowed to press you're not allowed to play man-to-man until it gets over the mid-court line
0: yeah well great thoughts and like I said, I will. I will let you go on that one. I really appreciate well, you.
2: Well, I'm just saying, just wait because when uh, when you're watching youth basketball, because you know, like before I had kids, I you know I was like whatever about this stuff. But when you're you as much time in gyms watching youth basketball as parents do, just wait. You're going to be thinking <laughs> back and saying, "Oh yeah, now I understand the <laughs> passion and the resolve and everything else behind." behind
0: I will. It. Yes, I will. I will go back to this and and, and let you know that you're right. So. Uh, man. <laughs> Thank you so much again for jumping on. Again, everyone, uh, whenever you have coverage issues, you can tweet Rebecca at Rebecca Lobo. Uh, she, will, she loves getting responses about changing the channel, and she will respond to everyone directly, too. That's, uh, yeah. that's a promise. Yeah.
2: Instead of watching the games in studio, the four games that we're watching at a time, instead of doing that, I will respond to all of those um, programming complaints, yes. or yes. perhaps I'll just forward them to you.
0: Yeah, okay, or, or or you could send them to coach, and maybe they'll get a more colorful uh, response than you or, you or I would send, so... That's true. (laughs) Thank you again, Rebecca, for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. So appreciative of Rebecca for taking time out of her schedule to join us. She really is one of the best analysts out there. Again, a recent inductee to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame and certainly someone whose expertise and experience through the game serves us very well to have her. So we're really appreciative of her. So we're going to wrap this segment up. And in like three seconds, uh, I'll come back with my final thought. This is The Jump Around with Blake Dudonis. With the NCAA tournament reaching its halfway point this weekend, something that's been in full swing for quite some time now is the coaching carousel. Coaches getting fired, people interviewing for those jobs, and trying to right the ship of so many programs. And something I can't help but to notice is the amount of opportunities and second chances that white coaches get. Now, I know this is a not fun topic and one people don't love to talk about, but I don't care because I do. Because, you see, when I look at the Sweet 16 and I notice there are only two black head coaches left and Don Staley and Felicia Leggett-Jack, and they play each other, so there's only going to be one left after Saturday. But when I look at that, it makes me kind of ponder on the matter that if a black coach does fail at the top level, how often do you see them getting a second chance at anywhere near the same level? You don't. You look at a Felicia. Look at Jack. Fails at Indiana, nearly was not hired, and fortunately was picked up by Buffalo in upstate New York, where she's where she's from, and you've obviously seen the success that she has had now, and it's a great testament to what second chances can mean if everyone is given a fair and equal shot, dependent on who they are and the kind of coach they are, not what color they are. You know, when Dawn Staley won the national championship last year, so many people were shocked by the fact that she joined Carolyn Peck as just the second black head coach to ever win an NCAA women's basketball championship, and For me, I said, well, sure, of course. There's only been two. Look at the number of opportunities that black coaches get. Now, look, I'm not going to sit here and suggest I can name every reason why this is happening in a little two-minute soundbite, but what I am saying is it's impossible to ignore the fact that white coaches have an advantage. They get other opportunities. You see a white coach fail at the BCS level, and then their name is in the mix for other BCS level jobs. And I'm not naming names because I don't know every situation and, and I'm not saying you know those coaches are bad coaches, but I'm saying that you just wouldn't see that for a black coach. I think it starts at the assistant level where black assistants aren't being developed enough to be head coaches. I think the coded language that's so often used with them is unbelievable. You see it in other sports too. You, talk, you want to look at football for a minute. You talk about A quarterback, in Lamar Jackson, at Louisville, who's an athletic, fast guy, but people wonder, can he think the game? Does he have the IQ level? Guys, it's coded language. And you see it the same thing with these coaches. Oh, they're good recruiters. I don't know how good X and O's they are. Why don't you talk to them? Why don't you find out instead of letting these preconceived notions rule out? And again, I'm not saying that black coaches should just get handouts, of course not, but it is impossible to ignore the fact that white coaches are getting more opportunities on a more consistent level than black coaches. And another fact is that these black head coaches, especially at top levels, not only have pressure to be successful for themselves and their staffs and their programs, they have to be successful for the next one to get a chance so for every Don staley who creates a way for a charlotte smith or a michelle clark heard there's someone who fails and then one of those don't get an opportunity because you go well i just don't know how successful a black coach can be and the talk of that is just tired to me it's frustrating to me and uh man we need to catch up on the times And we need to be willing to put aside those preconceived notions and hire the best coaches. And that's it. Thanks so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a great review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. Those reviews really help. I also want to thank Joe Haig and Rebecca Lobo for joining me today and sharing their thoughts. If you have any thoughts about the podcast, you can feel free to message me anytime on Twitter at coach underscore Blake underscore, or you can always email me at bdudonis12 at gmail.com. Enjoy the Sweet 16. This is Jump Around with Blake Dudonis.